Welcome to the CND Podcast. I'm Naima Kalachand and I'm the Clinical Editor. Today I'll be speaking to Oksana Pysik. Oksana is a Senior Teaching Fellow and the University College London lead for the outbreak of infectious diseases and the Global Citizenship Programme. Oksana is also the founder of the UCL School of Pharmacy Fight the Fakes campaign, a campaign which is pushing to raise awareness on falsified medicines. Today, I'll be speaking to Oksana about COVID-19 vaccine development that we've seen in the news over the recent weeks. We'll also be talking about how the vaccines work and what we can tell patients who are apprehensive and concerned about the safety of these vaccines. First of all, I asked Oksana about the vaccines currently in the pipeline, and this is what she had to say. So there are now quite a few COVID-19 vaccines in the pipeline. So over 210 candidates, 47 are in the human trial phase, and 10 are in phase three. So we've had a lot of really exciting, positive news, which was very much needed with the BioNTech, Moderna, and also the Oxford Zeneca vaccines that you've mentioned, which have really exceeded the expectations in terms of efficacy. Remember, the US FDA had said they would accept a vaccine with anything over 50% efficacy. And even Fauci had very conservative estimates of anywhere between 70 to 75% he would have been happy with. So really to highlight what a scientific achievement this is, not only in that particular time frame, but these high levels of efficacy that, again, this was early data. So what we will still have to await is the final regulatory checks, but the endpoints of the trials, everything that's coming from the press release, from the companies themselves, is looking very, very good. And again, all of this will be reviewed by the regulatory agencies as well. And that's a really important point to emphasize. But these research teams have had previous experience with vaccines and adapting their existing models to meet the particular requirements of making this new vaccine for COVID-19. And there's several different approaches that are being used here. And that's important as well. So the more platforms we use, the different types of technologies we use, this all boosts our chance for success. But we still don't fully understand how the body interacts with SARS-CoV-2 virus. This isn't totally understood, but there's one particular part of virus that we think triggers the protective immune response, and that is the spike protein. And in all of the images that you see of COVID-19, these are the crown-like projections. And actually, corona in Latin means crown. So this is the spike protein, and that's what the aims of these vaccines are finding ways to safely introduce that protein into the body in a form that stimulates immune response. So using the virus's genetic material. And there are two types of special delivery. So viruses reproduce, as we know, by infecting cells. And once they're inside the cell, the virus reveals its genetic material, which is like a set of instructions for making copies of the virus, which the cell then does. Again, if researchers have selected just a bit of the genetic material that signals how to make the spike protein. In this instance, we're looking at these mRNA, messenger RNA vaccines that introduce just this little bit of genetic material. The rest of the code for the virus isn't included, and this should make the vaccine safer 
because it can't lead to reproduction of the whole virus. So we can think about the Moderna vaccine, these mRNA, these new novel vaccines that really provide a blueprint for the spike protein. But the Oxford vaccine is slightly different. So instead, it puts the code for the spike protein into the genetic information of a completely different virus, but it's harmless to humans. So they use the altered recombinant virus Chadox, and this is an adenovirus platform. This type of virus infects chimpanzees, but again, is not able to infect humans. So the cell reads its genetic material and ends up making SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. So in both cases, with the Oxford vaccine and the Moderna Pfizer vaccines, the preliminary studies indicate that spike proteins get produced and that this stimulates a robust immune response, including both antibodies and immune cells called T cells. So we hope that this combination will stop the actual coronavirus from using its spike proteins to latch onto these ACE2 receptor cells and enter them. And that's the door that opens within the body if we think about receptors that way. But so far from the tests, we can see that both vaccines are able to make this happen. For the Oxford-AstraZeneca one, I thought it was interesting that they saw more efficacy if half a dose was given first and then a month later they were given a full dose. Can you explain a bit about that? Yes, that's very interesting. And I think there's still a lot of work being done to fully understand. But they were very clever to include trials with different dosing regimens. So we know that if we had two full doses, the efficacy was about 61%. So much lower than when we looked at the other form of dosing, which is half dose followed by a full dose of that. In this instance, we got up to 90% efficacy. And some of the theory behind that is that the smaller dose kind of primes the body for an immune response where the first dose is perhaps rejected. So the priming method is the one that because it's a so much more efficacious will be likely the dosing regimen that the Oxford AstraZeneca team will present forward. And again, there are many other advantages to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine as well. So not only can we store it at fridge temperature, which is really important given the infrastructure that we have, you know, we think about what type of vaccine storage facilities we have in pharmacies. It's not typical to have a minus 70 to minus 80 degrees Celsius storage type of freezer available which is the requirement for the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine. And this is because it needs to be so cold because mRNA is very fragile and it's encased in lipid nanoparticles. So it's this kind of coating of a buttery substance and it can melt at room temperature just the way we leave butter out. So that's why we need the Pfizer vaccine to be kept at these ultra-cold temperatures to keep its stability. Now, if even in the UK, which is a wealthy country, we don't have in existing GP clinics, pharmacies, in many of the places where we expect to get vaccines already, this type of storage is not currently available. And we would have to do quite a lot of expensive investment in that type of infrastructure across the country. Now, imagine if we go to places where the 
pharmaceutical supply chains are already more fragile. And this tends to be in the global south, in low and middle income countries, where the temperatures are very high. And it's already difficult to manage just normal medications due to, as I mentioned, difficulty in fractured supply chains, etc. Now, the Moderna vaccine has slightly more leeway still has to be frozen but you can have it at room temperature for 30 days and so that again means that if it was kept out of a freezer that it would still be usable so there are lots of different advantages and disadvantages to the top three forerunners here so the moderna the pfizer biontech and the oxford astrazeneca vaccines, but we expect to see further results from Novovax and from other companies as well that are in current phases of development. So it's likely that we will see these vaccines deployed in different parts of the world. Now, the final point to really mention about the AstraZeneca vaccine is that its price point. So this company decided that they would take a no-profit approach and make it available at less than three pounds which is different to to both the mRNA vaccines. And this means that many countries who would have otherwise not been able to afford the vaccine will have greater access. So, so this is really why I believe the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is the vaccine for the world. It's got better storage conditions, it's price point, all of these things with the two dosing, it's 90% is far above sort of the bar that was set at the beginning of the pandemic and is likely to be very effective in communities. So really, I think the fact that we have these already within 10 months of vaccines, this is a point of celebration. So you've mentioned the issues that there might be around with storage of the vaccines, but are there any other barriers to the mass production of these vaccines? Well, one of the main problems is time. So it takes about six months to prepare a batch of typically influenza vaccines. And given that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine uses a similar approach, this means that it'll take longer to be able to be grown in the laboratory. And really, we don't have that type of timeline. So when we think about the Moderna vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, it's actually much quicker to produce. We can get it onto the assembly line much faster. But then, especially again in low and middle income countries, we'll run into other shortages just as we did at the beginning of the pandemic. So we have to also consider that just the number of syringes, the glass, the vials, the reagents, all of these things we can run into short supply of, which would make immunization programs practically difficult to implement as well. So it's not just the vaccine itself, but all of the other aspects and let's say paraphernalia that is associated with delivering the vaccine that can also then run into a problem, particularly again in low and middle income countries. And do you think the vaccines will be mandatory? We've already heard in the UK that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, has said that the vaccine will not be compulsory. But even if the government does not take that approach and other governments may take a different approach, there has been discussion about it 
for instance, in China being mandatory, etc. We'll see what that final decision is. But international airlines have indicated that they would expect all passengers to be vaccinated against COVID-19 before boarding their flights, including an Australian airline and others. So although it may not necessarily be a government requirement, we could see employers, we could see those in the travel industry make it part of their policies, which is, again, within their rights to do so. And we think about employers, if you're a health care worker or frontline worker, then that becomes much more essential. And what kind of percentage of the population would need to be vaccinated in order for it to be effective? This is an interesting one, because if we look at how efficacious it is, that means we're able to have a little bit of leeway in terms of the whole population that would be required. So I think you know, if, if we can get up to 55 to 60% of vaccination rates, that puts us in a stronger position. Now, if the vaccine would be less efficacious, so again, if it was less than 70%, then we would need a greater number of people in the population to be vaccinated at about 70-75%. So that's good news in terms of how efficacious the vaccines are at this stage, the data that we have, but we still do have some barriers ahead to ensure that we have sufficient number of people within not, and again, this is the high income, low middle income country divide as well. If there's vaccine hoarding, if there's vaccine nationalism, then that will also mean that perhaps that 55%, that 60% of the population may all be within high income countries if we are not able to guarantee access to low-income countries. And let's just touch on the kind of patient apprehension around the vaccine. So people have discussed that they're worried that the vaccine's been developed really quickly. I guess if vaccine has some genetic material of COVID-19, that's also a cause of worry to patients because they think they could be at greater risk of getting COVID-19. What kind of advice can pharmacists give patients to reassure them? And what kind of information can we tell them about the vaccine? Yes, and I think this is a concern that I shared not just with anti-vaxxers who may have held these views before even the pandemic, but we see that there is this gray area of people who would normally be happy being vaccinated should it be within the typical five to 10 year timeline. And their vaccine hesitancy is probably best term to describe it. We think about people who are just sort of on the middle and think, well, this seems a bit too fast. But if we look at the clinical trials themselves, none of the standards have changed. So there hasn't been any shortcuts in safety. What we have seen is a concerted effort across all uh, pharmaceutical companies within the industry, all really of the talent in science and research and innovation coming together, because the world has screeched to a halt. And we have focused on one type of vaccine, each research team. So we have, again, plenty in the pipeline. But it just shows that had this been in normal times, yes, it would take longer because you, know, you may take longer to recruit patients. You, know, you may take your time analyzing the data. You have other drugs in your R&D portfolio you need to think about. You might be more careful about your investments. But here, it's not just, again, the urgency, but it's also the resources. So much funding and money has been thrown at solving this singular problem, which wouldn't normally be the case. So when we have all of this effort 
again, from the leading companies and the leading talent in the world, just shows what's possible. We're able to map the genome digitally very early. The Chinese scientists were able to get it up online. From that point till eight weeks later, the first phase one clinical trial came to effect. But the key point here is the number of people working on it. Look at the size of the funding pot and the fact that there are all of the typical barriers towards producing the vaccine have been removed. But that does not change the process of any clinical trial. Again, the standards have not changed. And it still has to be approved by the MHRA. Those checks are still in place. And if we also just think about the long history of vaccines, there have been so much more benefit than risk. We can look at how much it's extended our lives. Many of us can't remember what an iron lung is or people being encapsulated in these big long tubes because they were infected with polio or the scourge of smallpox, all the deaths related to that. So if we look at the long history of vaccines, the way that they have improved our quality of life, extended our lifespan and kept us healthy. There is very little argument to say that there is more harm than benefit, particularly at a population level what vaccines actually are, they contain a genetic code of harmless virus. So it does not alter your human cells. It just presents the body with instructions to build immunity, but it's not the disease itself. What we're looking to do is just stimulate a natural body's response. There's no evidence that any of the ingredients that cause harm are used when vaccine reagents, for instance, and Finally, vaccines just do not give you the disease. So far, most of the side effects that we have seen reported across a whole host of vaccines are mild irritation at the injection site, fatigue, some headache, some really minor uh, flu-like symptoms. Even if you have just a mild case of COVID, the emerging evidence on long COVID and the scar tissue in the lungs that's possible to develop, and we see that this was also true with SARS-CoV-1. The case for vaccination is overwhelmingly in favor of moving ahead rather than playing into these fears about what our vaccine process would have been in normal times. These are not normal times. I think this just shows what's possible when we collaborate internationally and put the resources behind it. I wanted to ask about the monitoring following vaccine administration. So there's been no long-term studies, obviously, because these have been developed this year. So what way will patients be monitored after they've been given the vaccine? So it's likely that monitoring will go on for a two-year period following vaccination. If we look at what's going on in the U.S., the CDC plans to send daily texts to those who are vaccinated for the first week and then weekly texts for the following six weeks. And the FDA will be also monitoring side effects in real time. In the UK, this is still not totally clear. The MHRA has issued an urgent tender notice through the EU public procurement journal for an AI software tool to help deal with expected high volume of potentially reported effects. So in this instance, the yellow card scheme would in itself alone may not be enough. So in order to be able to preempt any concern that people have, they've turned towards a company called Genpact, 
this roughly $2 million contract to really use sort of software to be able to identify some of these uh, reports. And again, as with any new drug, there can be a range of adverse drug reactions, but on the whole, many of the most serious types of adverse effects do appear in phase three. But as always, when we go to the population level, we can find new things. A reported adverse effect, however, doesn't mean a vaccine isn't safe. It just helps us identify what potential side effects could be included in sort of the monograph. So again, there could be things that haven't been picked up in the clinical trial, but that doesn't mean that is essentially very serious or something that would indicate the vaccine isn't safe. It just gives us a more full picture of what is possible. And this effective monitoring is going to be absolutely critical in order for the public to trust central governments, regulatory agencies, that they're doing their job, they're following up on the safety, and that they have a robust system to log, analyze, and allow for prompt feedback for any kinds of reported side effects and ensuring public safety. So that with clear communication should hopefully help to build up confidence in these new vaccines. So all of these agencies are taking it very seriously. UK's yellow card system typically might receive one report per 1,000 immunizations. So again, looking at vaccines in general, this is quite low, and sometimes they aren't related to the vaccines. This is just people who are able to say that you know they're experiencing something, and that then has to be followed up and investigated. However, anti-vaxxers do tend to cling to these as evidence that it is directly linked to that. So it is going to be a particularly difficult regulatory challenge, uh, and it's interesting to see how different countries are tackling it. But we really do have to get it right because anything that indicates that we're not taking the safety of the vaccine seriously will set us back in terms of acceptability of medicines, vaccines, etc. quite a bit given the, the rise of this anti-vaccine sentiment. And this has been ongoing even before, I would say, the pandemic itself. So we saw a 30% increase in measles in the last year. And measles, of course, completely preventable with the MMR vaccine. 2019 was the highest on record for cases of measles. So we do see that there is this type of paradox of despite having the strongest innovative science and evidence body, more regulatory checks than ever before, we also have higher levels of public skepticism. So I think that this anti-vaccine is a symptom of something larger than just the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, and it's definitely a place where pharmacists can educate patients on vaccines. And I think it's a good place for pharmacy to step up and make sure that these messages are getting out correctly to patients. Absolutely. I mean, pharmacists are going to be critical for this, not only in reassuring patients about these processes, about what happens when a vaccine is made and other concerns, but also just in distribution as well. You know, the manpower that's involved, pharmacists have lots of experience in this and our networks will be very valuable in this effort. And I just wanted to finish on one last question. What will be done to stop the development of any falsified vaccines? 
So the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime has predicted that this fake vaccines, particularly because there's going to only be a certain amount available within the next year. So Pfizer says it'll have 1.3 billion doses available and other companies even less so. So we certainly know that it'll take some time for this to reach others. And this is why a prioritization system has been developed. But even then, there will be an opportunity here for organized criminal groups to step in and to make quite serious profit to those who feel that they cannot gain access to the vaccine, again, due to the challenges that I've just laid out, and then go to somewhere like the internet to find these. And this is, again, where I think pharmacists really should be cautioning patients about making sure they know how to verify that the online pharmacy is legal and not a fake website linked to to other groups. And And that's quite difficult. They can make these websites very, very snazzy. So it'll come down to ensuring that there's very good detection technologies available. And again, unfortunately, because of Brexit, the FMD directive is no longer applicable to the UK. So we've lost access to their EU database and we won't be able to develop our own in time. And given the fact that falsification is going to be a problem, but also the substandard issue. So substandard is not of criminal intent. Substandard is, let's say, if that uh, Pfizer vaccine that needs to be stored at minus 80 ends up being stored at outside of a freezing temperature, and then it's no longer usable, that would make it substandard vaccine. So the substandard issue will be particularly worrisome for those with more complex cold chain requirements within the supply chain. And with this falsification, again, this is an access thing. We see that whenever there's limited access to a particular drug, PPE even, testing at the beginning of the pandemic, 14 million pounds worth within the first week was identified by Interpol of falsified PPE and testing kits, corona sprays, etc. So uh, we saw that it was applied to that. There was a lack of access globally due to this shortage. There's going to be, again, rolled out phased approach because we aren't able to manufacture as much as needed, which will create this opportunity for criminals to step in. Now, in some countries, you know, we would hope that there is enough education the public that people would go to their pharmacy or GP or vaccination site to get a vaccine instead of turning to online. But more and more people who are isolating or who, again, for other reasons, maybe wishing to skip the queue may turn to these untoward things. So at UCL, I've launched a campaign called UCL Fight the Fakes. And here with a group of 40 global partners, we're really pushing to raise awareness on this and to engage with big tech to also flag when these websites are in fact not legitimate and try to demote them. Then this is an ongoing process and it's very difficult to to be able to convince some of these giants to be able to get this on board. But I think more and more we will see that misinformation is how people end up accessing fake drugs. And misinformation has been a big, let's say, side effect of the pandemic. And we saw that in terms of fueling 
that COVID-19 is a conspiracy to other quite extreme content. And, and all of this is interlinked. So we have to also tackle misinformation to tackle any types of falsified COVID-19 medical products. And for those who think that this hasn't been an issue, the WHO has already issued alerts to, again, various different countries showing that there has been falsified chloroquine in over 300 hospitals and pharmacies in Cameroon and, and other countries on the African continent. And, and that's it's not limited to just one region. We see that this is everywhere in the world, including high-income countries, but it's at a rate of about one in 10 in low and middle-income countries. So absolutely, we need to do four things through UCL Fight the Fakes, and that's one, increase public awareness, advocate for the issue, make sure that pharmacists are checking patient knowledge about buying legal pharmaceutical products online safely. And a vaccine wouldn't be available that way. But pharmacists know that. Does everyone know that is, is the second question. Next would be to ensure that we're educating our healthcare workers to be able to detect and report these as quickly as possible. In a previous WHO research, we saw that pharmacists were quite slow to report and quite late in identifying falsified medical products, even though they're the last person to hand over the medication to the patient. We also need more research in this field. It's a very underfunded and under-researched area. So that body of evidence also needs to grow and we need to see innovation from various tech companies to help with new detection technologies, things that people can use in, in different settings. Because again, the experience of healthcare is so different depending on where you go. And then we need at a policy level, legal changes and reform to protect people from these falsified products by flagging or demoting websites that are fake and by increasing penalties for anyone who is selling these fake COVID-19 products and exploiting the fear of the population. Uh, there's a long history of this happening during other crises where we see a surge of falsified products. For instance, after World War II, there was a shortage of antibiotics and criminals also exploited this to be able to make profit. So we have to be aware and we have to ensure that all pharmacists and other healthcare professionals policymakers are coming together to fight the fakes. This podcast was recorded on Thursday the 26th of November and since then there's been some exciting updates on the COVID-19 vaccines. Oksana is going to summarise these for us and then we'll jump back into the original interview. There is some concern that the AstraZeneca Oxford half-dose group had only 2,700 participants so some critics see this as too small to yield a robust efficacy result. It's just a fraction of the tens of thousands of participants that participated in Pfizer and Moderna trials. So all we have to go on is limited data release, and we'll have to wait for the full data and to see how the regulators review that result. So it may be that more trial data gathered over time in that group will solidify the interim findings and it could be that a new global trial based on this half-dosing pattern is required for global clarity. Although Oxford and AstraZeneca have submitted the readout to regulators across the world, so they are actually seeking market approval, 
And this is already subject to discussion with regulators. And the other exciting development since the last time we spoke is that the MHRA has approved the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, making it the first country in the world to do so. This is clearly excellent news and it's very positive to the elderly population will be the first to receive this vaccine in the UK, those who, who are most vulnerable and need it. It has been authorized under the emergency authorization process, and this means that it's undergoing batch-by-batch batch analysis and that there is a rolling review of the data looking at the clinical, toxicological, and quality Process. So this is ongoing with advisory groups at all stages. In the past few weeks, we have also heard a lot about the safety and effectiveness of this vaccine. And even Boris Johnson in his last press conference referenced quality. So really, again, this lipid nanoparticle formulation presents particular quality challenges. And as we've discussed, this is around some of the stability and storage requirements. So when we talk about the mission of Fight the Fakes, it covers both substandard and falsification of medicines. So we know that poor storage conditions can lead to substandard medical products. And so this is going to be a chief concern for this. Equally, Interpol two days ago issued a press release warning 194 member states that criminal organized groups are looking to target vaccines. Uh, drug makers have even had to have decoy and fake storage sites to throw them off the scent. So again, the regulators will also have to work very closely with law enforcement to prevent diversion, theft and falsification, both physically and online. And again, this warning came from Interpol. And it is a concern that perhaps is not often discussed in the media, but one that is critical if we are going to maintain trust of the public. So a couple of exciting developments. Certainly, we expect to see that other countries will follow very, I imagine, shortly. And the UK regulator has been very nimble, very rigorous in adapting its practices and prioritizing resources to achieve this rapid authorization without compromising any standards. That was Oksana Pysak. Oksana is a senior teaching fellow and the University College London lead for the outbreak of infectious diseases and the Global Citizenship Programme. We spoke about the mechanism of action and the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines currently in development and the challenges in the mass production of these vaccines. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to CND Podcasts on your preferred podcast app or on SoundCloud. Thank you for listening. <laughs>